This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 39. Genesis 39. Let's begin our time together in prayer. Lord, we pray now that you would be glorified and that Christ would be exalted through the preaching of your word. Thank you for such an important and relevant and and powerful passage. We pray that you would open our eyes to its meaning, not just that we would understand it in our minds, but that it would make its way into our hearts, into our lives. Temptation is a regular visitor for all of us, and so we pray that we would see the power that Jesus, you've purchased for us on the cross to walk in holiness. And Lord, we pray that when we find ourselves in situations of darkness and difficulty and trial, we would remember what your word tells us, that even though our circumstances would say otherwise, you are with us and there is nothing better than you. So satisfy us, we pray, anew. Fill us with your glory. Give us grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What's your definition of success? If you could map out your life and you could have anything that you wanted, be with anyone you wanted, have as much as you wanted, would that be a success? The world has answers for you on this. Our culture has answers for you. Answer number one, success is power. Power and influence. This is in our face all the time. If you don't have power, you'll never be fulfilled. That is the underlying message of theories like critical race theory and intersectionality. Success is overthrowing those in power and getting power for yourself. There are really only two groups, the oppressed and the oppressor, and the end game, the goal of life, is to move from one to the other. So get power. That's success. You won't find much hope there. You won't find the gospel there. That's answer number one from our culture. Number two Success and true happiness come from your own sexual freedom and fulfillment. If you really want to be happy, you must be free to define and pursue your sexual desires. How could you truly be happy and content if someone else sets those boundaries? Boundaries like your gender and sexual preference and practice, whether it's inside or outside of of marriage. You are essentially your sexuality. 
So what could be better than money and power and the security that comes from that? What could be better than having all of your sexual desires met on your own terms? Could there be a version of success and prosperity that competes with that? I want to read a few verses from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sin, the way of sinner, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. That word prosper is the same word used in our passage, Genesis 39.2, that describes Joseph as a successful man who's, who was under the blessing of the Lord. God caused all that he did to succeed or prosper, verse 3. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed, verse 23. So this is a different kind of success. Not the health, wealth, prosperity version. The context of all those verses on prosperity are Joseph in slavery and then accused wrongly and in prison. How can you be successful and blessed as a slave and prisoner? And the answer is the main theme of our passage and of the sermon this morning. God was with Joseph. That's as good as it gets. That's where we started in Genesis, with God, with man, walking in the cool of the day in the garden. That phrase, the Lord was with Joseph, it, it acts like a, like a parenthesis for this passage or an inclusio. So you'll notice that you see it in verses 2 and 5. And then it gets repeated down at the end of the passage in verses 21 and 23. And it's kind of like Moses' commentary on the events of what's happening in Joseph's life and in ours. So interestingly, after this passage, the Lord's name kind of fades away out of Joseph's story in, the, in his it's being mentioned, but the Lord doesn't fade away. So Moses wants us to see that at every point in Joseph's life, the, the exaltation and the humiliation, God was with him. And friends, that's what we want to see for ourselves, those of us who are in Christ, who trust the Lord. That God is with us, and that changes everything. It changes the way that we view success and sex and temptation. It changes the way that we live every part of our lives. And we're going to see an example of that this morning in Joseph, but his life points to another greater than he, who was more than an example, who was a suffering servant, savior, and king. But it doesn't get any better than knowing God. And God was with Joseph. And he's with you if you're in Christ, in every circumstance. So that's our main point. True and lasting, keeping satisfaction comes from knowing the living God. True, lasting, keeping satisfaction comes from knowing the living God. That's what's at the center of Joseph's life, and I pray it would be the center of ours. As we look at this text, let's look, we're going to look at it in really three parts, kind of under that, that heading of God being with Joseph. And so we're going to see first that God is with Joseph in his prosperity. 
Really, he's being promoted as a slave in verses 1 to 6. But then we're going to see that God is with Joseph in his temptation, verses 7 to 18. And then finally, that God was with Joseph in trial, in his trial, verses 19 to 23. So prosperity, temptation, and trial. But if you think about it, slavery and temptation and trial and prison don't sound like a very, they put together a very successful resume. But Joseph had what Pharaoh and Potiphar and Potiphar's wife don't have. He has God. And he knew God's steadfast love. And the Bible is arguing that is true prosperity and success. True blessing that changes everything. So let's look together at our first scene as we see God with Joseph in prosperity. In prosperity. And if you've been with us, you know that the the start of Joseph's story happened in chapter 37 as he's sort of introduced um, as the favored son of his father, Jacob. And then we see his brothers, their plot to to throw him in the pit, really to kill him. But they end up deciding to make a little money on the deal and selling him off into slavery. The last we heard about this was in chapter 37, verse 36, where we read, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an offer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. But then it's like we had this interlude in chapter 38 with this story of Judah and Tamar and his evil actions, Judah's actions against his daughter-in-law. So first he refused, if you remember, to give his son Shelah to her to carry on the line of promise after um, her husbands had died. And then in his lust, he propositions her, propositions her as she's disguised as a, as a prostitute and, and she becomes pregnant. And then when he finds out that she's pregnant by sexual immorality, he condemns her to be burned. And it's only when he's confronted with his own sin, the garments that he gave for her as a pledge, that he repents and what we seem to think he may be converted. Well, if that chapter feels out of place, it's not. There's a connection with what we're about to read in chapter 39. So we're going to get a recap of the story now in chapter 39. Look with me at verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And I just want to point out that that little phrase, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, is the same phrase in chapter 38, verse 1. Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside. I think Moses is just inviting us to make a comparison between Judah and the way he handles temptation, all the things before him, and the way that Joseph handles those same things. Also, I think the emphasis there, if you notice on Potiphar being an Egyptian uh, in verse 1, it's just a reminder that, that, that Moses' original audience, you know, the ones that are reading this um, in, the, in the wilderness, Joseph's story itself is a foreshadowing of Israel's own story. As they go down to Egypt, they start off by being very highly favored and exalted, and then they are enslaved and rescued and redeemed and made into a great nation. So that's a, that's a recap of where we've been and sort of a foreshadowing of what's to come. Continue there in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian 
master. It's a powerful and really unique claim in the Bible, particularly in Genesis. We've seen promises from the Lord that he would be with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here, just plainly stated, on the, in bold face like this, that, that God is with him, really, you don't see that anywhere else except the, 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 the picture of that pre-fall relationship between Adam and Eve and God walking with them, unhindered by sin. And so keep that picture in mind. I think Moses wants us to see the garden and see Adam as we're looking at Joseph and the way that he interacts with these temptations in his own life. Let this set in. The Lord was with Joseph in his being sold into slavery and as a slave. The psalmist kind of colors in the experience a little bit for us in Psalm 105. Psalm 105, verse 16, we read, speaking of Joseph, when he, when, or when he summoned a famine on the land, the Lord, and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of him. Joseph, who was sold as a slave, his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The Lord was with Joseph. Even here, even now, Joseph is better off than Potiphar, better than Pharaoh. He has what they don't have. He is blessed. He prospers, even as a slave. We see this in Joshua 1, this kind of this thinking, Joshua 1, 8, Very similar to Psalm 1, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way, he will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Now, Joseph doesn't have the law. He doesn't have the Bible at this point, but he does have the promises he has the promises from given to Abraham to think on and to believe to Isaac and to Jacob, and he's seeing with his own eyes God make do on them. For example, when it says that he was in the house of Potiphar, verse 2, that's a promotion for a slave. That's a promotion to come out of the field and be in the house. He's not working. He's inside in the AC. No AC, right? But it's a much better better position than to be out in the field. Much preferred job. And God's grace just continues, so much so that Potiphar can't even miss it himself. Uh, Look at verse 3. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So just zoom in on that phrase in verse 5, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. That really is an outworking, isn't it, of the promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12. 
I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So as Potiphar promotes Joseph, God blesses his house. God's blessing is coming to the nations, all the the families of the earth through the seed of promise. Even when that seed is buried deep in the ground of slavery, it sprouts and blossoms because God was with Joseph. Potiphar trusts Joseph so much that he stops paying attention to everything except his own lunch schedule. What's he going to have for dinner? His own food. So Joseph has all of this under control. You talk about climbing a ladder. He's gone from from slave to overseer. And he's 17, 18 years old. Any temptation for that to, to go to our heads? Absolutely. We ought, to, we ought to see here, I think, just a reminder to be, be patient as God's people when things in life go against us, when, when we don't know what's happening, we find ourselves in, in the darkness to trust in the good providence of God, to keep God at the forefront of our minds, knowing that he's good and he's in control of all things, even the prosperity that comes our way. What's easier? To stay close to the Lord when things are going well or when things are going badly. God exalts Joseph. But nothing's changed about where true success and satisfaction lies. It's in the Lord. God was with him. Circumstances change. Promotions come and go. Bank accounts get fat and skinny. God never changes. Changes. True security is found in him. So so power doesn't equal God's blessing. Even if you're enslaved, have no influence, no money, you can be prospering in the Lord. There's no greater value than God's presence in your life. No richer blessing than God himself. So beloved, remember that as the world kind of moves the goalposts on us for what true success looks like by saying it's power or sexual fulfillment. But the Bible says, no, it's better to be a nobody like Joseph, a slave with the Lord than the master of the house without him. Because circumstances change. And we see that in our next section. So number two, we'll see how God was with Joseph in his temptation. In temptation. Don't miss that phrase there in verse six. We didn't read it earlier, but, but now Joseph was handsome more handsome in form and appearance than anyone. He was, he was a handsome guy, good-looking dude. It's, a, it's, it's interesting how there's some comparisons between him and other characters in the Bible, and David and Daniel, and I think about Esther, who was, who was raised up again to the, the right hand of power in a foreign nation, used to, to save her people. We don't have time to trace down all those lines, but, but Joseph is handsome in form and appearance, which is exactly the way his mother was described in Genesis 29, 17. Leah's eyes were were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And so Joseph takes after his mother here. Only Rachel and Joseph are described this way, with that kind of that double kind of descriptor in in all of Scripture. So just, just something to note. 
Joseph and his, this young, good-looking kid that's now been promoted to, to overseer over all of Potiphar's business and affairs, everything except the food that he eats, which is like, I think, a reference to like his personal matters, which might include his marital matters. He's in charge of all these things. And so it's at the peak, this should not surprise us, of his prosperity, the peak of his promotion, that the temptation comes. So look there at verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. And I just want this to land on us. I don't want to just pass through this to get a handle on what's happening here. Um, Potiphar's wife is in a place of authority over Joseph. He is a slave. His only job is to obey his master and then maybe by extension his master's wife. And so if he rejects her, if he rebuffs her, he is kind of throwing all of this promotion, all of his career ambition out the window. It is that all that weight is right there in just those little words, come lie with me. There's a, there's a temptation here. There's got to be to some kind of strategic adultery in order to keep his position. Not to mention just the, the sexual temptation itself. Joseph is a teenager. His hormones probably racing. And he has been through everything you could imagine. Maybe he's thinking, don't, don't I deserve a reward for all the things that have happened to me? An indulgence? I feel like all, it, all that's happened is people have done things to take advantage of me, and all I've done is to, to give and to serve, and, and, and what about me? I wonder if you ever have that logic in your own heart and mind, the way temptation will, will, will seek to be justified and sin be justified by something that we might deserve. And this temptation isn't just a one-time temptation. It's a relentless temptation. It's a crafty temptation. He gives this great speech in the next few verses, but that doesn't, that doesn't take Potiphar's wife off of her, her goal. Look there at verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. So she tries to wear him down. You know, think Samson. Think that story. Samson did okay for a while, but eventually he got wore down. Day after day, temptation is there every single time he walks into the, the room. And she presents it in a way that makes it seem harmless in stages. Just lie beside me. Keep me company. My husband's gone all the time and I'm lonely. Just be with me for a while. No one else is around. No one else is going to find out. Notice that phrase there in verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. Now, what would the world say? Well, if power is our goal, here it is for the taking. Get it at all costs. This is a no-brainer. Actually, it's two birds for one stone because you get sexual fulfillment at the same time. You deserve this. You've been through so much. True freedom is sexual freedom. No boundaries. 
Go for it. This was so normal in the kind of the slave culture in this day. There'd be around 80 slaves in an Egyptian house like this. Sexual promiscuity was the norm. Devilish comes to mind when I think about the temptation here. Um, I say that because it is so similar to the way that, that the devil tempts Adam and Eve. Joseph has everything except one thing. You can eat of any tree of the garden except this one thing. He has it all under his control except one thing. It's actually described as food there in verse 6, something you would eat. There's a connection there for us to, to notice. But really the forbidden fruit of Potiphar's wife. What would Joseph do? Is God with him even now? And so this powerful temptation is going to be met with Joseph's powerful God. He responds to her kind of three-word statement, lie with me, in a rather lengthy response. So look, look with me what he, how what he says there in verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So he refuses. He stands up to temptation, and he's got these kind of three, this three-pronged argument that he gives her. Number one is his loyalty to Potiphar, to his master, uh, something his wife clearly doesn't have. He's saying, he trusts me. He's put all of this, this, this material, all these things, his business, his affairs, into my hands. I'm not going to repay his trust with deception. So he shows some, some integrity here, some loyalty here. The second prong is that he reminds Potiphar's wife that she's a wife. You're his wife. Joseph is, is saying something here about the, the value and the purpose of marriage, which is a breath of fresh air coming from these patriarchs, isn't it? To see someone saying, yes, no, this is not, not going to work. Friends, the Bible is so clear that, that, that sex is a good gift from the Lord to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. You are his wife. You're his wife. All other things apart from that, all other sexual expression apart from that is sin. Any self-serving perversion of that. There is just really unflinching conviction about this in Scripture. And then finally, Joseph roots all of these things there at the end of verse 9. I can't do this against God. I can't sin like this against God. Because Joseph knows and fears the Lord, his priority is not to sin against God. This was David's response, wasn't it, that Sam led us in, in Psalm 51, 4. I think that's amazing, actually. Against you and you only, he says, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I think, in other words, by comparison... I have sinned with Bathsheba, adultery, and Uriah, murder. But my sin against God is 
infinitely greater. Infinitely greater. It's a fundamental gospel truth. All sin is first and foremost against God. And all have sinned, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. The main thing to take away from this passage is not be like Joseph. There are a lot of things that Moses, I think, I I know wants us to glean and understand about how he, he deals with temptation. But we need to first understand that we are not like Joseph in all of our ways. We have failed. Maybe not in this exact scenario, but over and over we have proven ourselves to be sinners in rebellion to God. And sinners sin. And the wages of sin is death. And it's the same for Joseph. He's not sinless. He too sins and is guilty before a holy God. So our hope is not a perfect record in our dealing with temptation, but in the one who was tempted and never sinned. Not once, not in thought, not in deed. The perfect, righteous Son of God, Jesus Christ, that's our hope. We fall short, He didn't. It's only because of His righteousness that we are saved. Romans 3, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. That's our hope, to receive by faith the perfect Son of God who paid the price for our sins and rose from the grave. You can be justified, made right with God when you put your faith and trust in him. Friend, why wouldn't you do that today? If you don't know that you're justified, if you don't know that you're right with God, why wouldn't you turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus today? We know that we're not righteous. We know that we've sinned. And we need someone who is righteous to save us. Trust Christ Follow Christ. It's only in that relationship, it's only in that transformation that we can withstand the onslaught of the world, the flesh, and the devil in this life from a place of being accepted already. We can now fight the good fight like Joseph does here. So so there are gospel implications for what we're reading here. Because of what Christ has done, now we seek to walk in holiness. The author of Hebrews, again, in our post-confession scripture, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Friends, Jesus is a sufficient Savior He wants to help us even now. He's interceding for us even now in our time of need. Calling us to the throne of grace. Now, I love the way that Joseph responds to this temptation. And I think Moses intends for us to see that it is very unlike the way Judah uh, acted. And it is unlike the way Adam acted. Joseph fears the Lord. He listens to the Lord. Notice um, and, and not to the woman, verse 10, not to the voice of his wife, as Adam did. I think mean, that's another connection drawing back to Genesis 3. 
He rejects her kind of abuse of authority, her, her lustful intent for something much better. Her threats fall on deaf ears. Listen to Psalm or Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Joseph doesn't have, he's not dominated by fear of what's going to happen in his career. He's, he's safe because he trusts the Lord. And I love that he calls her offer what it is, wickedness. This is wickedness and sin against God. Beloved, we need to name sin for what it is. It's not an escape. It's not a struggle. It's not a mess up or a mistake. It's wickedness. That's actually helpful as we think through the temptation in our life to say, this is wickedness against God. And we're going to be less likely to entertain wickedness. Joseph doesn't take one step in her direction. We know little compromises are going to lead to big compromises. Sin doesn't start with, hey, go into that house and commit adultery. No, first you need to drive around the block. Then you need to park in the parking lot. As you understand the cycle, she says, just lie beside me. Just talk to me for a while. So, beloved, just look down at your feet. Are they on the path toward sin or away from it? Here again, we learn from Joseph, verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment and said, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Something about Joseph in these garments and these cloaks. This would have been a long kind of t-shirt, which would have really taken some effort to take off of this guy. And so there is a struggle. This is like a forceful struggle. And she catches him like an animal in a trap. And then he escapes, kind of, you can imagine backing up and she's holding on to the shirt And there's our application, flee. We ought to learn from that, flee, run. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So, so men and, and women, young men and young women, flee sexual immorality. Don't linger. Don't loiter around places that you know you shouldn't be. Whether it's in your mind, whether it's on a website, a physical place, flee. Flee. When Solomon speaks of the temptation of the adulteress in Proverbs 5, you could, Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 are wonderful to meditate on on this topic. He says, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. The Bible presents sexual sin as an issue for both men and women. It's not a, it's not a male issue or a female issue. Last chapter, it was a man, Judah, who's dominated by his lust. This chapter, it's a woman, Potiphar's wife. Lust is no respecter of gender. It's an issue of the heart. 
that can be overcome by the power and blood of Jesus Christ. Flee to Christ. Trust promises like 1 Peter 1, 17 and 18. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus came to ransom us not just from our sin status, but from actual sins, from ways, futile, sinful ways. Friends, there's power in understanding that connection between the cross and the temptation that you face. to sever the root of sin in our life. The irony is the slave in this passage is actually Potiphar's wife. Joseph is free. He's free to turn away from sin. Jesus came to ransom us for for power like that so that we can fight with his power. One verse to, to remember in that fight comes from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Sometimes we, we think, man, this is just specially for me and, and it's and it just no one else understands common to man. It's humbling. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know, one of you have experienced this, God's grace in delivering you from temptation, exit signs that appear, parachutes that drop down. God is with us in temptation. We're not alone. He has given us his promises. He's given us himself and the Holy Spirit, and he's given us each other. Listen to the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But instead, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Oh, do you see the great value of the relationships that we have here in the local church? Our conversations are to be built around helping each other follow Jesus. That includes turning away from our sin, holding each other accountable, confessing our sins and temptations not isolating ourselves from those kinds of relationships. It is abnormal to be a Christian and not talk about temptation and sin. Abnormal. It's abnormal to be the guy in small group who's always fine. Right? There's an appropriate place and time to talk about these things, but nobody's always fine. We need the Lord. We need each other. We need to humble ourselves and and take this battle against sin and temptation seriously. And we need to be encouraged that God is with us and he will see our journey to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean it's going to be a smooth ride. So let's conclude at looking at what happens next as we see that God is with Joseph in his trial. In his trial. So, so there she is. She's holding his, his garment. He took off without a shirt on. 
I think it's interesting that she's got this, this thing in her hand. And we, we saw in verse 3 that Joseph had been, again, everything kind of in his hand that had succeeded. So kind of a reverse there of what's happening. But she had to think quickly. So she comes up with a story, and it's pretty good. Verse 13. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. So first she, she yells to her other servants and slaves and really puts kind of a bond between them by saying, he's come to laugh at us, me and you. We're on the same team. And really, my husband brought this Hebrew, mentions his ethnicity, kind of appealing, you know, to their xenophobia. It's my $10 word for today, fear of, of foreigners. Hey, this is this Hebrew who's coming to laugh at us. And Joseph's just barely getting away. Somehow his shirt came off. And then she starts to refine her story a little bit and prepare it for her husband when he comes home. Verse 16. Then she laid up his, his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. Remember, that, that name is kind of means Isaac, so it's just interesting to kind of think about that. It came to Isaac at me, which we maybe would draw that out as a, as a blessing of the nations, but a little irony there. Verse 18, but as soon as I lift up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. So now notice the blame is shifting some onto her husband. You brought this Hebrew here. That sounds familiar from Genesis 3, the, the woman that you gave me. But the story is well-crafted, Maybe she had thought of this and just in case this had happened, and it seems to work. Verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. I think there's a little ambiguity here as it relates to Potiphar's anger. His anger was kindled, but at who? We would assume Joseph uh, but the text doesn't say maybe he's upset because he just lost his right-hand man. Or maybe he knows his wife better than she thinks and he suspects her story, but he has no choice but to punish Joseph. I kind of think it's that because if you're a slave accused of going after a woman at this stature, it's going to be the death penalty without any question. No brainer. Joseph doesn't get the death penalty. Potiphar just goes light on him. He puts him into prison with the king's prisoners, so not even the general population. So perhaps he's suspecting something about his wife's story, but we know ultimately behind that is the providential hand of God, which we are reminded of again in verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The Lord is still with Joseph in his exaltation, in his temptation, and now in his humiliation. And there's nothing better than that. 
The psalmist says in Psalm 63, 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Oh, that we would know the love of God like that. The verse 21, hesed, steadfast love of God that Joseph experiences even in prison. God was with him, falsely accused, thrown down into a dirty, dangerous prison. Your goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Verse 22, And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. If that sounds familiar, it's basically the, the exact, a repeat of verses 2 to 6. God is with Joseph again and always. And so, friend, when you find yourself in these places, in these dark, lonely places where you seem like, it seems like things are completely dark and you're alienated, what a hope to know that God is with you. He doesn't always protect us from the darkness. He doesn't always protect us. Sometimes it's in his will to protect us from these things. Sometimes it is to walk with us through these things. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. You are with me. He never leaves us by ourselves. He is the good shepherd. We're never alone. And Joseph's life is an encouraging reminder of that over and over again. But this pattern of an exalted, beloved son, betrayed and humiliated and then raised up to glory, as you know, doesn't end with Joseph. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and he was God. That means Jesus was with Joseph in the pit when he was shackled and and led around like an animal and when he was thrown into prison. And then that Jesus came to earth, took on flesh, humbled himself as a servant, a suffering servant that was stricken and smitten and afflicted to save a people for their sins. He was falsely accused, put to death as a criminal. But as the Proverbs teach us, Proverbs 24, 16, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Jesus rose from the grave. God exalted him. He is the blessed man of Psalm 1 and Joshua 1.8. Above every name, his name reigns. And his last words to us, to his disciples, are such a comfort. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The one called Emmanuel, God with us, in prosperity, in temptation, in trial, Christian, God is with you. It doesn't get any better than that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that this truth would land on us and change us. Lord, we pray that if there are two versions of ourselves, 
one public and one private. You would give us grace to repent and bring both of those together under your grace, under the gospel, to know that all sin is ultimately against you and there is no hiding from you. And yet you fully know us and yet still Christ died for us. Lord, that kind of love, that kind of steadfast love, we confess is better than life. It's higher than we can, our brains can go. But we pray that you would help us to to comprehend it as much as we possibly can. And we do pray that we would walk in holiness as a congregation, in our marriages, those of us who are single, those of us who who are teenagers, those of us who are growing up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. May we fear you, but Lord, be comforted by your presence and promises. Lord, thank you for being with us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.